As you can see, if you've got your handout there, we're going to be back in Matthew 5. Over the past two weeks, we've examined the first two Beatitudes, and we've found uh, that humility and sorrow for sin are two key characteristics of those who are presently in the kingdom of heaven. And today we're going to look at a third characteristic of such people who are true believers, those who are in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and this is uh, a characteristic that always goes along with the other two. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 uh, through verse 10 this week. And seeing the multitudes, our Lord Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I've noted before that this sort of begins and ends with the fact that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? So the whole set of blessings here belong to those who are in the kingdom of heaven, but they're also described in different ways, right? Poor in spirit, meek, as we'll see today, those who mourn for their sins, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, peacemakers, sons of God. These are all different ways of speaking about believers here, right? So we have to keep that in mind always, that that's what Jesus is talking about, and these aren't things that you can gin up in yourself. They have to be produced by the Holy Spirit. Let's begin with a word of prayer so that we can receive the Spirit's help in understanding the word this morning. Holy Father, we come to you in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, asking that you will fill us anew with your Holy Spirit, that we might understand the things that you have to say to us in your word. We know that apart from the working of your Spirit, we cannot grasp the things that you intend to say to us, to transform us, to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. So work in our hearts to that end, we pray. We pray for those who aren't here with us today, where many people sick and traveling this week, and we pray for those who are traveling that you will keep them safe, those who are sick that you will heal them and bring them back to us quickly. For those of us who are here, Lord, may we, may we hear you speak to us through your word and be changed thereby. We ask these things in the name, once again, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a, an English author and a poet named Richard Legellian. Uh, he wrote in the late 1800s and into the 1940s. And he once said that a paradox was a truth standing on its head in order to attract attention. Um, Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, has spoken of Jesus' penchant for paradoxical sayings. He wrote thus, Christ was the master of the paradox. His teaching is salted with shining contrasts like, last is first, giving is receiving, Dying is living, 
losing is finding. Least is greatest. Poor is rich. Weakness is strength. Serving is ruling. For Christ, paradoxes were an especially effective way of getting people to see essential spiritual truth. In this instance, and this is our text for this morning, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those two things don't, on the surface, always seem to go together. In order to fully understand what our Lord Jesus meant by this statement, as we've done in our previous weeks here, we're going to ask some key questions. And the first key question we're going to ask here is, who are the meek? And then after that, what does it mean that they shall inherit the earth? Sometimes we read over these Beatitudes and we don't stop to think about what they really mean. So I want us to do that today. First of all, who are the meek? Now, in order to answer this question, we first need to consider, I think, the definition of the Greek term translated meek in this verse. And then we're going to consider a couple of biblical examples of that, as you can see in your notes that I provided for you. First, then, I'd like to point out that it's, it's not really so easy to ascertain the precise sense in which the Greek word is intended here. Um, we go, we understand the meanings of words. They have a range of meanings generally, and we usually know by the context in which a term is used how it's intended to be taken. But this context, because it's in this short saying, the best we can do is look at what comes before it and after it in these Beatitudes and try our best to understand what Jesus is getting at. As D.A. Carson aptly observes, the word meek, the Greek word praus you have there, is hard to define. It can signify absence of pretension, but generally suggests gentleness and the self-control that it entails. I think that's on the right track. Um, The analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament defines the word as, quote, a mild and friendly disposition. It can mean gentle, kind, considerate, or meek. It depends on, on the context, the precise nuance. And meek here it states, is in the older sense of strong but accommodating. Um, It's important to keep that in mind because that's a key element of the meaning, I believe, that Jesus would have us to see here. Uh, Meekness is not the sort of effeminate timidity that some have imagined, uh, and it certainly is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. As a matter of fact, the Greek word translated meek in this verse was also sometimes used with reference to an animal, such as a horse, that had been tamed. The animal would still have all the strength it possessed before it was tamed, only now the strength was brought under the control of its master. As Kent Hughes has written, understand that meekness is not weakness does not denote cowardice or spinelessness or timidity or the willingness to have peace at any cost. None of those things sounds like Jesus, do they? Neither does meekness suggest indecisiveness, wishy-washiness, or a lack of confidence. Meekness does not imply shyness or withdrawn personality, as contrasted with that of an extrovert. Nor can meekness be reduced to mere niceness. On the contrary, I would hasten to add that meekness requires great strength and self-control. Meek people are very strong people, actually. Gentle people, if you take it gentle, some translations have gentle here. I prefer meek. 
Um, they're s- similar, slightly different nuances maybe in the meanings of those two words. But gentle people, meek people, are not weak people. They're strong. It takes a great deal of self-control to remain gentle and to be meek. And that requires strength. In fact, it requires the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, if you read Galatians 5 and you look at the fruit of the Spirit and you see gentleness there, that's the word that is being used here. This has to be produced by the Holy Spirit in a person. And so it requires this strength and self-control because, you know, it it defies our fleshly tendency towards pride and self-sufficiency, doesn't it? And this is no doubt why Jesus mentions meekness only after first stressing the importance, as we've seen, of poverty of spirit and of mourning. We'll never be meek people if we're not first people who recognize how poor we are in spirit, how much we need God, who recognize that we're sinners and mourn for our sins. That's the pathway into experiencing God's forgiveness, right? That's the pathway of repentance and of trusting in God and not ourselves. That's the pathway through which we experience the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, who is the one who produces in us meekness. So the order in which Jesus is saying these things is pretty important, I would argue. But anyway, that's, that's a general gist of the meaning of the term, meekness. It's a, a kind of gentleness, maybe. It's, a, it's strength that's under control. It's, it's not a, a kind of strength that's ever used to bully, to browbeat, to cajole or anything like that, right? Uh, secondly, with this basic understanding of the word in mind, we'll turn our attention to a couple of biblical examples of meekness. And our first example is Moses. We read in Numbers 12.3, Now the man Moses was very humble. Now, in the Septuagint, the, the, the Greek translation, is, as you all know, that was of the Hebrew Bible, that was the common Bible of the, of the apostles, actually, and it's quoted in the New Testament. Uh, it uses the very same word there of Moses that Jesus uses here. When he says, blessed are the meek. Moses was very meek, more than all the men who are on the face of the earth. The King James Version, the ESV, actually translated meek here, and I think correctly so. Again, humble, gentle, meek, they kind of slide together. They have a lot of overlap in meaning, these terms. But we know that Moses was also a very strong man. Uh, who was capable also of righteous anger. And we see this in the account of Israel's sin of idolatry at Mount Sinai. And I want to take time to read at some length that account, because I want us to get a picture of what a meek man might do in a situation in which there's all kinds of sin being committed, and he's in a position to do something about it, right? Right? Because we often, when we think of the meek, we have a very, very different idea of what meek is versus what the Bible says that it is. It definitely is a humble and gentle person, but it's not a person who doesn't exercise strength when it needs to be exercised, even if he does it as gently as he can. 
Sometimes that's impossible, as we'll see. This uh, account is in Exodus 32. I'll begin reading in verse 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. And we know he'd gone up on Mount Sinai, and God had written, right, etched in stone these Ten Commandments on these two tablets. This is what Moses has when he's coming down from the mountain. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they should, remember Joshua had gone part way with Moses, but not all the way, right? So he wasn't with the people at the time. He was somewhere on the lower parts of Mount Sinai waiting for Moses to come back down. And so that's why Joshua's not where the people are. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he, Moses said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. Remember, they had made a golden calf, an idol. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. This is meek Moses, the meekest man ever at this time, doing this. Then he took the calf, which they had made, and burned it in the fire and ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. This is meek Moses we're talking about here. The meekest man in his day. Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you've brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. He's blaming them, right? For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us, As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever is any gold, let him break it off. And so they gave it to me, and I cast in the fire, and this calf came out. This is a bit of a lie. If you read earlier in the account, he crafted this, and he took some time doing it, apparently. But uh, we're told that now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Now notice what's happening here. The people are upset with Moses, and they say we need this idol because we're upset with Moses. We don't even know what's happened to this guy. He's tarrying so long up on Sinai and stuff, and, you know, we need something to hold on to. But Moses doesn't react to their rejection of him because he's a meek man. He's, he's got poverty of spirit. He's a man who mourns for sin. He doesn't countenance it, certainly, as we see. But Moses' concern is that they've rejected God, not him, because he's a meek man. But he's not, as we're seeing, a weak man. And so he stood in the entrance of the camp and said, as we've seen, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. So he's speaking the word of God here. Let every man put his sword in his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp. 
and let every man kill his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, which is the word of God here. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. They probably concentrated on getting all the ringleaders, right? Because there were certainly more people involved in that, I'm sure. And then Moses said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. Because he's a meek man, you see. And it's about the Lord. It's about humbly serving the Lord that he's concerned. And not about himself. It's not pride that's driving him. And he says, do this that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. What does a meek man want for the people around him? The blessing of God. And sometimes, in order to bring that about, he will confront sin, and he'll do it with great strength. And that's what Moses did. And he says, for every man is opposed his son and his brother. What a terrible thing that happened in Israel. So Moses was hardly a weak or timid fellow in his service for the Lord. But we're told he was meek. In fact, that there was no one more meek than him. So I'm trying to use these examples to give you a better idea of what a biblically gentle or meek person would be like. It's more like strength that's under control. It's a very self-controlled person. Our second example, of course, is the ultimate example, our Lord Jesus Christ, who, of course, was meeker than Moses. He's the meekest man who truly ever lived. And this is what he said of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, or as the KGV has it, meek. It's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. For I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's very interesting that Moses, this meek man, what did he want for the people of Israel? The blessing of God. Well, we could, Jesus wants rest for their souls. But he, but unlike Moses, he can actually give it to them. Moses pointed them to the Lord who could give this to them. Jesus said, I, because he is the Lord, can give it to you. However, we also know that Jesus was the strongest of men, Right? Jesus was certainly no weak man, um, and he was capable of displaying that strength in righteous anger towards sin, even as Mo- Moses had done centuries before. And we see this in John's account of Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Beginning in John 2, verse 13, we read this. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, and he takes time here to make a whip. Uh, And he, as we'll see, didn't make it just for show. He used it. And he says he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple. The implication is with this whip. Now this is one man taking on a big crowd here. This is not a weak, timid, cowardly guy, Jesus, here. (laughs) 
he drove all these people that he'd found in the temple who had sold oxen and sheep and doves, we told in verse 14, and the money changers. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Why was Jesus so concerned? Well, he actually, Moses was the same way we saw. He was concerned because people had dishonored the Lord. Well, this is the same concern that our Lord Jesus had when he drove these people out of the temple. He did it somewhat violently. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And that's a reference to Psalm 69.9. So again, our Lord Jesus was definitely not a weak or a timid man. He was the strongest of men and a courageous man, but he kept his strength under control and displayed it in ways that it was necessary. Such examples, I think, demonstrate that A.W. Tozer was on the right track when he wrote of the meekness that a Christian must have, observing that, quote, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He's thinking of, he's recognized his poverty of spirit. He's thinking of, right, the Beatitudes here. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is a weak and helpless man, as God declares him to be. But, paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels, in himself nothing, in God everything. That is his motto. That's a good idea of what a meek person is like. It's a good assessment of the kind of attitude our Lord Jesus was talking about When again, after having said, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn, he then went on to say, blessed are those who are meek. And with this in mind, we're ready to answer our next question, I hope. I hope we've gotten an idea of what meekness is like. Kind of hard to define. It's kind of a gentleness that is kind of strength under control, used only for godly purposes. Question number two, then. What does it mean that the meek shall inherit the earth? And interestingly enough, the word that's used for earth here, uh, it's the Greek word gay. That's the word. That's how it's pronounced. It can also mean the land, the earth or the land. And you see, when we look at the Old Testament, the Hebrew word eretz can mean either earth or land as well. So gay is a good translation of the Hebrew Eretz because they both have a similar range of meaning. And sometimes it's hard to tell in a particular context whether it's the whole earth that's being talked about or just the land of Israel, right? Now, I think it's better to translate it, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth here. Uh, And I think we'll see why that's the case as we move on. But in order to answer the question, What does it mean that the meek shall inherit the earth? I think we have to begin with the scripture to which Jesus is alluding here. He is clearly alluding to the promise in Psalm 37. 
verse 11. He's quoting it from the Septuagint, actually. He's using the same, the same Greek terms that you find in the Septuagint version of Psalm 37.11 are what Jesus is using here. So there's no question he's referring to this verse. So if he is, then we've got to go back there and look at that verse in context to understand what Jesus might mean when he cites it. Here's what Psalm 37.11 says, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. I don't know if all your translations of that verse in, in the Psalms there has shall inherit the earth or has shall inherit the land some of them might have, because again, the word can go either way. I think the earth is better. But in order to understand better what, what it means when Jesus takes this up, I think we need to at least look at some of the context here of Psalm 35. I don't want to take the time to look at the whole psalm. I'm just going to hit some highlights for you. And I think you've got the verses in your notes. I hope you do. Um, we're going to back up in the psalm to the preceding verses, beginning in verse 5. And we'll read at least through verse 9. Where David writes, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him. So when he's talking about the meek, it's those who are trusting in the Lord. Right? And he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. This is another way of describing who these meek people are. They trust the Lord. They rest in the Lord. They wait upon the Lord. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. It can look sometimes to the righteous like the wicked around them are getting all the gains, right? They're the ones who are really prospering. And David's trying to remind them, don't let that get you down, right? Because he's going to say, in the end, it's the meek that are going to inherit the earth, not the people that are trying to steal it all the time, right? Um, Cease from anger, he says, and forsake wrath. He doesn't want them to be a vengeful people. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Isn't that the truth? Those of us who fret, fret a lot, we know that. For evildoers shall be cut off. See, it might not look like they're going to be cut off right now. It might look like they're prospering pretty well. Don't let yourself be filled with anger toward them. Wait upon the Lord and know this. Their day's coming, and so is yours. Things are going to be turned around in God's time. But you wait on the Lord for that. You don't try to make it happen, right, through vengeance and anger. He says, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. We will win in the end, he's saying. We're the ones who will really inherit the earth, not them. So this informs what he means when he says, but the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek are those who, unlike the sinful, wicked people around them, trust in the Lord, wait on the Lord for his timing. Later in the context, we read in verse 22, for those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Verse 29, he says, the righteous shall inherit the land. Interestingly, the New King James Version switches from earth to land here. It's the same Hebrew word, right? Um, And they shall dwell in it forever. Wait on the Lord, he says in verse 34, and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. 
When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. So David's imagining a time here. He's imagining an ultimate fulfillment of this promise as a time when the wicked are cut off and there's only the righteous. Who he also refers to as the meek here. Those are the ones. It's the righteous who will dwell forever in this future promised land or earth that he's talking about. Later on in Isaiah, it would be called the new heavens and the new earth. I think that's ultimately where the fulfillment of this comes in. Um, I think that David is looking beyond merely the land of Canaan here, perhaps. Um, In fact, the author of Hebrews later saw the promises regarding the land of Canaan as a type looking forward to a heavenly place. And I think David might have had something like that in his own mind. This future inheritance will be right, much better than what he was seeing in the land in his days. The, the wicked will be cut off, and only the righteous will be there. Well, that's, that awaits the future, even for us still, right? And this is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 about this same kind of concept. Hebrews 11, I'll begin in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. We're finding out from the author of Hebrews here, why didn't Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ever build a town to live in or even a house? Why did they always live in tents and travel around in tents in the land that had been promised to them? They never seemed to settle down, but instead chose to live as though they were in a foreign country. Why? He says in verse 10, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. Abraham, and he must have passed it on to Isaac and Jacob, had this idea that the land of Canaan wasn't the ultimate promise that awaited him, that there was a heavenly city that he was looking for. Instead, I think David had that kind of idea in his head when he spoke of us inheriting the land ultimately as the righteous, the meek, will do. We're told that by faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. In other words, she had every bit as much faith as Abraham had. She can sometimes get short shrift on that, but we're being told very clearly here, and you can see it in the Old Testament. She trusted God too, even though she was weak in her faith at times, as, of course, Abraham was as well. But they still trusted God. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, we're told, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Well, wait a minute. He was in the land God said he could have, right? Well, no, not ultimately. And he knew it, we're told. He knew it. He was living as a stranger just passing through because that's exactly what he was. His home was in heaven. Ultimately, 
But we're told that these people who all died, having seen them afar off, these promises were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And you can find throughout the Old Testament this concept of being pilgrims on the earth elsewhere. For those who say such thing, those who describe themselves in these ways, declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, I think that David, in Psalm 37, was looking for that heavenly city and that heavenly country. And that that's the ultimate fulfillment that he was looking for when he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I think when Jesus cited David, who was the original author of this beatitude, right? When he cited David, he had the same idea in mind, I'm arguing. And the author of Hebrews later on picks up on this concept of an inheritance of land that points to the future. We know when this will happen, uh, we've read this passage a couple of times in previous weeks, and it's always encouraging to read it. We're going to read it again. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says, and this is the Apostle John seeing a vision. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. What, what, was, uh, what was it that the, these saints were looking for? A heavenly city? Here it is. It's builder and maker is God. Here it is. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. What a wonderful promise. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death and no more sorrow and no more crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. This is the new heavens and the new earth. That's the, that's the ultimate fulfillment that we're looking for. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. When? The new heavens and the new earth, that's when. All the wicked shall be cut off, just as David said, and just as it's described in the book of Revelation. And only the righteous will be there. No more crying and no more dying then, we're told. And remember, when we first began our our study of the Sermon on the Mount, I pointed out to you that there's a, when Jesus says we're in the kingdom now, then he goes on to tell his apostles to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's in some sense future, Right? even though we're in the kingdom now. Well, we're already citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, that new heavens and new earth now, even if the ultimate fulfillment of that awaits the future. And I know we're citizens of it now, and there's a couple of passages along that line I want to read to you, getting back into Hebrews first and then Philippians, to drive this point home. Because he's talked of this heavenly city, In Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews goes on to say we actually have come to it already as Christians. He says in Hebrews 12, beginning verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. 
the heavenly Jerusalem. Already, he says, we've come to that city. And to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, or registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. The resurrection hasn't yet happened, but Christians have died, believers have died. Well, they're already in this spiritually, in this heavenly city, apparently. You've come to Jesus, he says, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood, a sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Remember, Abel was the first prophet, and he was killed by his brother Cain. Remember, we're told, God said that Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. Well, his blood was crying out for vengeance. Jesus' blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Why? Because it cries out for mercy. It cries out for grace for us. So we've already come to this heavenly city. And Paul said in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our citizenship is now already in heaven, he says. It is in heaven. Just like Abraham was already a citizen of heaven. And he lived like a stranger passing through this earth. Because he looked for a heavenly city. We are also now citizens of heaven. Looking for that heavenly city. And we are strangers passing through. We're pilgrims on this earth. We're the meek who shall inherit the earth. (laughs) In the new heavens and the new earth. If we've trusted in Christ. We're among that number. For our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he is now, right? Our risen Savior. And he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. He's talking about the resurrection here. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. When will we ultimately experience fully this new heavens and new earth. Well, when we're resurrected, when Jesus comes back, when we're living on the new earth, when the heavenly Jerusalem has come down to earth, heaven and earth have come together, and we won't be pilgrims anymore. We'll finally be in our homeland where we belong. For now, we're just outsiders. So I'd like to conclude our contemplation of this promise, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, with some helpful advice that I discovered from Kent Hughes in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And he describes these as three concurrent paths to meekness, and he just does a good job of this. He says, first of all, we need to realize that meekness can only come as a product of the Spirit's work in our lives. I mentioned this earlier. Galatians 5 22 and 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. That's our concept in our verse here. Self-control, against such there is no law. So if we're going to be meek, we have to realize, first of all, it comes from the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we must realize that meekness can only come through an intimate connection with Jesus by which we learn from him. Going back to the passage that I read earlier where Jesus described himself as meek and lowly of heart, 
I want to read more of that text now. I read verse 29 before. Now I want to read verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As Kent Hughes reminds us, in biblical times, a young ox was yoked to an older, experienced ox so that the older might train him to perform properly. By bearing the same yoke, the untrained ox learned the proper pace and how to heed the direction of the master. We learn by being yoked to Christ as we surrender our lives to him for direction. I think that's a good understanding of what Jesus meant when he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We learn how to walk with God by being properly yoked to Jesus. Lastly, we must realize the importance of the progression of these first three Beatitudes that I've already pointed out. We cannot attain to meekness without first realizing our spiritual poverty and inadequacy. Excuse me. And without mourning our sorry sinful state and thus repenting, as we saw last week. So if you're here this morning and think, I want to be one of those people that inherit the earth in the way that I've heard described here. I want to be in the new heavens and the new earth. I want to be at a time where all this wickedness I see around me is over. And I won't see it ever again. I want to, I want to, be, I want to be one of those resurrected people that won't ever have to battle sin anymore. Well, you can't get there by working hard at it. You get there by realizing you can't do anything to get yourself there. That you're poor in spirit. You have nothing to offer God. That you're a sinner who needs to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. That's how you become one of the meek. That's how you inherit the earth. Through what he's done, not through your own efforts. Jesus Christ, who was fully God, was born of the Virgin Mary and became fully man. Fully God and fully man in one person, in such a way that his deity neither added to nor subtracted from his humanity, and his humanity neither added to nor subtracted from his deity. He was perfectly God and man, both in one person. And he lived a sinless life never had a sinful thought even. Because he did that, he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, fully keep the law, live a righteous life. He did that in our place. And he, because he did that, was able to die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, taking the wrath of God upon himself for our sins. so that we could have his righteousness credited to us. And when we trust in Christ, that's what happens. We say, I'm ceasing all trust in myself. I'm trusting only in what Christ has done through his righteousness. Grant me, through faith, the righteousness of Christ. That's what salvation is about. That's where forgiveness comes from. 
And God forgives our sins when we trust in Christ as the one who died for our sins, as the one who rose from the dead, and as we saw, is even now at the right hand of God in that heavenly Jerusalem, from, from which he ever lives to, to intercede for us. We trust in him, in him alone, and leave off trusting in ourselves then we'll find ourselves among the meek who shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for the teaching of our Lord Jesus. It's been my hope to try to explain what Jesus had in mind when he cited this verse in this context. What he wants us to think about. What the disciples ought to have known already, at least to some extent, from their understanding of Psalm 37. Help us, Lord, to fully grasp this and to, I pray, Lord, learn more and more through our connection to Christ to be more like him, to be meek as he was meek. I pray, Lord, that we will see as we go forth from here that that doesn't mean being weak or timid. But perhaps, as A.W. Tozer said, and as our Jesus was, bold as a lion, as strong as Samson in our faith. Courageous, strong, but with great self-control. Great love for those around us. A desire to be tender-hearted toward them forgiving them even as you and Christ have forgiven us. Help us, Lord Jesus, I pray, to become more like Jesus. For anyone who hasn't yet trusted in Christ, it's my prayer that he or she today would trust in the Lord Jesus as his or her Savior, that you, Lord, would do for them what you've done for us. Grant them faith and repentance, I pray. We'll give you all the glory for what you do as a result of this teaching in our lives, for you alone deserve it. We pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I know we covered a lot there. I thank you for your kind attention.